0: Conspiracy
1: show with Richard Seren from Zuma Radio, AM seven forty, and welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Happy Canada Day! One hundred and fifty-one years young, and she doesn't look a year over one hundred and thirty. She must be taking lots of wild oregano oil. (laughs) We'll find out more about that in a moment. If you hear fireworks in the background, don't be alarmed. Uh, That's because I'm coming to you live from my home studio, my little studio beneath the stairs tonight, as I like to call it. And there are a number of small... I guess you would call them independent fireworks displays happening in the neighborhood, uh, in the park next door, in fact, and uh, probably in a few backyards around the neighborhood. Uh, We have uh, hung our big flag out in front of the house. Uh, No fireworks at our uh, place this year. I normally do fireworks for my boys uh, in the park twice a year, May 24th and uh, Canada Day, but it happens to have fallen on a Sunday and it's a work day. Uh, However... We're going to make it up to them because Wednesday we're all on a train to Ottawa for the U.S. celebration, July 4th. And uh, the mighty Aphrodite uh, is, uh, has been invited to the U.S. ambassador uh, to Canada, Kelly Crafts, 4th of July party at her residence, a big backyard do. Uh, it's called uh, Red, White and Bourbon. Apparently, Kelly Kraft's husband is in the bourbon manufacturing uh, business. They're from Kentucky. Uh, so that'll be a great party. She's invited, not me. Let, let me be perfectly clear about that. Uh, they're not going to allow the riffraff in there. So she'll be there enjoying the fireworks at uh, Ambassador Kraft's uh, residence. And um, I'll be with the boys. We'll have a great time in Ottawa, the War Museum and the Parliament buildings and uh, uh, a very nice hotel and a nice swimming pool. And we'll enjoy sort of an extended Canada Day weekend well into uh, next week. Ian is uh, back in master control, my fine rockabilly friend, Ian Robertson. And uh, Ryan is up at his family's cottage. Uh, And Albert is taking Canada Day off. So we will soldier on in their absence. Uh, In hour two of the program, Don Donderry, co-developer of the American Personality Inventory, API. He developed that test along with Bud Hopkins to assess the validity of a report that someone has been abducted by extraterrestrials. It's an alien abduction test, folks. And Don will be uh, also a featured speaker at the MUFON 2018 symposium, which is coming up Later this month in Philadelphia. First up, if you're hiking in the woods this long holiday weekend, make sure you wear long pants and you pull your socks up over your pants granted you're not going to win any fashion awards but you might just prevent yourself from getting Lyme disease it is that time of the year folks the ticks are out they're not everywhere but you might you might you might want to check online to see if you're living in an affected area and it often goes undiagnosed and it can develop into a chronic debilitating condition my next guest stomps around in the woods for a living, and he contracted Lyme disease several years ago, and it it went undetected, and it left him in a wheelchair, but he beat it, and he's here to tell you how. Cass Ingram is a nutritional physician who received a B.S., Bachelor of Science in Biology and Chemistry from the University of Northern Iowa, and a D.O. from the University of Osteopathic Medicine and Health Sciences in Des Moines. Dr. Ingram has since written over 20 books on natural healing. He's given, uh, he has given answers and hope to millions through lectures on thousands of radio and TV shows. His research and writing have led to countless cures and discoveries. Dr. Ingram presents hundreds of health tips and insights in his many books on health, nutrition, and disease prevention. He's one of North America's leading experts on the health benefits and disease-fighting properties of wild medicinal spice extracts. A popular media personality, he's appeared on over 5,000 radio and television shows. He now travels the world promoting perfect health the natural way. Hey, Dr. Cass, how are you?
2: I'm doing great. How are you doing? Sounds like you're uh, taking your herbs and spices and home remedies because you sound real good.
1: Thank you. Yeah, uh, I tell you, with my schedule, I gotta, I gotta take a lot of supplements and and uh, eat properly and so forth. Yep. And uh, yes, if I feel something coming on, just the very early signs of it, you know, a little tickle in the back of the throat or something, then yes, absolutely, some uh, wild oregano under the tongue and knocks it out fast before it has a chance to develop.
3: Yeah, there's a
2: lot of interesting spice extracts, uh, the wild oregano being the one that's most commonly known uh, in Canada, but there are a number of them, and they each have different properties medicinally, uh, and I've uh, sort of published extensively, as you know, about that. Uh, I mean, this time of year, it does help to know, uh, to know. If you have not heard about it before, of oil of oregano, uh, like you said, the tick season is out there. If you did get a tick on, and you had a really good, uh, high strength oil, you could saturate the tick and kill it uh, within a few seconds or within a few minutes, and then you could remove it dead if you wanted to. <laughs> So, And, of course, it's, by the way, the most effective treatment for sunburn that I've ever used.
3: Oh, okay.
2: The, um, the uh, super strength. You know, the oregano is the original oil of oregano, and, of course, since that time, a number of Canadian brands, other brands, come gone on the market. But the oregano is very, very safe to use on damaged skin, wounds, decubitus ulcers, uh, MRSA, you know, uh, acne, boils, pimples, lacerations, abrasions. It's going to burn, but not as much as water. Isn't that interesting? Interesting, uh, so, yeah. In fact,
1: it's and better than. As it is it- on there? But In, instead so of acid. iodine, let's say you have a cut, Dr. Ingram, a cut. You we used to put iodine on there. Iodine and we used
2: to, and then they used to use merthiolate, which is mercur, uh, mercury compound. Ooh, dear. And hydrogen peroxide, which can damage the tissues. But that's not true of the wild oregano oil. Though you could use iodine, oil of oregano is 100 times more aggressive as a germicide. And that's Interesting. saying something, because iodine is virtually poisonous to germs. Yeah. But the benefit of the oregano is it will heal the, uh, the wound. I had a guy who tore a, a, a half dollar size wound on his arm on his bicycle. He got hit by a car. And he was kind of a poverty uh, type person. So we sent him the super strength oil of oregano. And he just continuously saturated. And, and he came uh, and showed me the lesion, and it dramatically healed. With, without any major scar tissue, even though it was a pretty good-sized wound on his arm. So, uh, so the, you know, by destroying the infection, but then who would have ever thought that it would work for sunburn? Yeah. Uh, it's uh, so effective for that.
1: Well, what does it do? How, do? how does it regenerate the tissue?
2: Well, you see, this is a good point. The oregano oil, the real, true wild oregano oil, has the ability to make the skin make enzymes, like, for example, superoxide dismutase, certainly glutathione, catalase peroxidase. And uh, then it, so, so all these enzymes that are needed for repair and regeneration are, are becoming motivated. And then it, 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 it dramatically cuts the inflammation in that skin layer. It also mobilizes the lymph. You know, you need that lymph to heal wounds. That's how the body deals with that. Uh, Or an infection that might get into the skin. The lymph is dealing with that. There's nothing more aggressive in making the lymph flow. In fact, I had a sidebar. I had a guy who had uh, elephantiasis, pseudo-elephantiasis, on one leg, okay? Mm -hmm. I had him saturate. The, the leg with the oregano oil and take the oregano super strength 40 drops three times a day. 90 days later, it was destroyed. The, the leg was normal to the other side. All that swelling.
1: 40 drops a day for 90 three times days. A day, 40 drops.
2: Uh, but that, you can wow. only use the edible one, the oregano the original stuff. You can't be using these knockoff, goofy brands that have come up. Now, getting back to this sunburn. The mechanism of action is to interdict the inflammation in that deep tissue and homeopathically, like for like, heat for heat, and also somehow as an antioxidant, because oregano is a very potent one. It's uh, 100 times more powerful than blueberries. So it stops all that, uh, that toxic inflammation. And so, therefore, if you are going into the South or the Caribbean, you have to take it with you. Especially if you're fair skinned,
1: right? Like me. Now, do you? Uh, I always joke. I don't tan. I stroke. Yeah, I uh, know you do. <laughs> when
2: we do that, when we, when are we going to do that program? We're supposed to try to do some TV or something. Uh, I'm going to have to, you know, be like having the parasol around you or something.
1: Exactly. Um, but, so, what do you do? Put that? Do you do you put it in like a spray bottle?
2: Well, you could do. And also, you've got the oregano cream, so you've got that pre-made cream that you could be using that, um, you know, that you could put on if you want more of an emollient, and, and then you should take it internally. So there's two ways to fight back against the sun with the oregano, about 10 drops twice a day as an antioxidant, and thirty three, three ways, not to wait for the sunburn, but to put some on before you go out.
1: It works as a sunblock?
2: Yes, it does. Really? Yeah. And, you know, it's the opposite of what you'd think. Now, mind you, if you work up a big sweat and you have the oil of oregano on your skin, (laughs) you're going to feel the heat.
1: Sure, sure. But it's
2: it's an oil. I mean, this is a gift from God. You have protection against food poisoning. We all think of oregano oil only for the, you know, winter.
1: Right, right. But
2: we take it with us when we travel, and therefore we take 10 or 15 drops with every meal, so we do not get a bacteria.
1: Ah. See? How about against, uh, about, against uh, hep, hepatitis?
2: Yes, it would be effective if you take it uh, a considerable amount with every meal. So therefore, you, you would take <laughs> 20 to 40 drops and maybe take your probiotic a couple times a day as well. You know, and then if you, but if you want the ultimate protection, if you're traveling this year, you do what I do, which is I do take the Super Strength oil, and because I'm using the oregano, it's edible. So if I want to take forty to eighty drops with every meal, because I'm in some danger zone like India or someplace, uh, I, uh, you know, I'll do it, and uh, and then the oregaresp. You see, the oregaresp dry capsule that you and I know very well. You take that one, two or three with every meal, and it's impossible to get sick if you're doing those things, you see.
1: Wow. Now, my sister just retired. She was a a, a nurse for uh, 32 years, I think. Oh, yes. And uh, if there, in flu season, she would wear her surgical mask, and she would spray the, um, the, the oregano in, in the mask. Oh, that was... And and then also when she would when when she flies well, uh, you, on an airplane, same between thing.
2: Between you and I and all the the, the, the oregano has become a mainstay in the culture of Canadians. The oregano oil, I think so. And I think and, so. and see one of, and certainly it's cut the cost for Health Canada. Show that we should be on like the, our picture should be on the wall over there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I must say that that the beauty of the P73 material, though it's a little more dear, uh, is, uh, is that it's edible. So that if we wanted to, let's say we had Hep C or we had Epstein-Barr, we have chronic candida, we have uh, a drug-resistant germ, we have some sort of uh, bronchitis or sinusitis or uh, chronic infection, scleroderma, lupus, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, diverticulitis, believe it or not, these are infectious diseases, esophagitis, gastritis, certainly H. pylori. Well, we take five to ten drops, or if you want to crank it up, 20 drops, two or three times a day, non-toxic. You do it as long as you need to, whether it's uh, a month or two or three or four or five, uh, to, uh, to get rid of it. And in that respect, I believe we have helped uh, uh, make uh, the health of Canadians more simple we don't need to have so many antibiotics, we don't need so many anti-inflammatories, we don't need so much panic uh, with minor to moderate like colds and flu and bronchial and sinus and earaches and the things you and I have been doing and for you you've been doing for your children you got a simple product here. does it all and there it's an go. antihistamine so therefore, if a person does have a vulnerability seasonally to allergy, it's toast with this. Or more seriously, what about anaphylactic shock from aller- allergy ah, to peanuts, or or, or a bee or sting, a bee. or a bee sting, or It toasts that too. So,
1: so if you have if you're but if you're in the middle of a of a reaction, and you're if you you're toast uh, with the
2: super strength. You know, you're on the way to the ER. But you pound the superstrings uh, to shut down the anaphylactic shock, and it will do it every time, no really? exception. Wow. If it's a true anaphylactic shock from an allergy reaction with histamine production and an inflammatory cascade, the, if you're taking the P seventy-three, it will kill the anaphylaxis and uh, save the life. I know. I had it happen to me once, I had, and some patients I had it happen. I was on site. Uh, this guy got, we were in the mountains in, in, in Lebanon hunting for uh, mountain-grown oregano and mountain-grown honey, you see?
1: And Cass, he, I'm going to get know, you to hold on bees. to that story. And so the beast went and attacked
2: this guy and stung him in his ear.
1: Yikes. Listen, i got to get you to hold on. We're going to finish this story on the other side. Uh, I don't know if the music is playing. I can't hear it in my my earpiece, but uh, we will uh, take a time out. Come back. Dr. Cass Ingram is here. The cure is in the cupboard. The Lyme disease cure, the cannabis cure, and uh, many more. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us.
0: Don't be afraid of the dog. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio, to talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. Dr. Cass Ingram is with us. Coming up in the second hour, just a reminder, Don Don Derry, uh, who will be a featured speaker at MUFON 2018 Symposium in Philadelphia, July 27th to 29th. And uh, he uh, co-developed the American Personality Inventory, which is basically an alien abduction test. And he'll be here to tell us all about it right now. Cass Ingram uh, is with us. Cass, I interrupted you. You were in the middle of this harrowing story. You and a friend, was it yes. you were in, in yes. Lebanon?
2: So we were in the mountains about 4,000 feet above sea level in Lebanon. Do you think we can get in the ER or emergency room? So so he gets stung. I happen to have a little bottle of the P-73. So I pried open his mouth. He's going into anaphylaxis. He fell to fell to the ground. He was standing up. He fell to the ground. He's shaking. He's dying, and uh, and of course you don't have any EpiPen or anything. So so we squirted the oil under his tongue and then rubbed and saturated the earlobe. And ten minutes later, he was up and walking around. Everything was okay.
1: Why why the earlobe?
2: He got stung in the
1: earlobe. Oh, that's where he got it stung. Oh, I thought it was maybe like an you know, acupuncture he got point stung or something.
2: Right there, you see, and. Uh, uh, and some of this is fright, but also people are allergic. Sure. sure.
1: Uh, so,
2: I mean, I had it happen to me. I'm very allergic to celery. I try to stay away from it. Uh, and, and so a dear friend of mine said, doctor, you've been working all day long. I'm going to get you a juice. And, uh, I, and so he brought me this juice. I drank it. I, and I said, uh, 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 I was celery juice, my friend. Uh, oregano oil, super strength, So they got me. He happened to have a bottle. He was a fan. I squirted it under the tongue and it saved my life.
1: <laughs> that You would have died. Well,
2: I would you have would had have... to go to the emergency room or something could have died. And right. of
1: course, it's scary. Wow. And I didn't so, think anyone was allergic to celery. It's like 99% water,
2: isn't it? I know. But... My mother used to force me to eat it, I think it's something like that. Ah, okay. Um, (laughs) But in real life, people die from peanuts. Sure. They die from uh, soy. They die from GMOs. You know, GMOs are very poisonous to some people that uh, certain individuals can react and, and they could die of shock. They die from penicillin. They die from pharmaceutical drugs, which are the number one cause of sudden death from anaphylaxis. They die in the hospital from uh, IV iodine or IV contrast. When we could be routinely in the hospitals, in the can, in the Canada, da, da, we could mm-hmm. be giving the oil of oregano as an antidote. As an what animal. about when you
1: go into a hospital? There are so many. I mean, some, that's the worst place to be when you're sick because there's so <laughs> many germs oh, uh, and bacteria and, and, and um, I don't go
2: unless I take the cleanse and the oil of oregano.
1: You wipe everything down with that.
2: Well, that. But I also spray a bit on my clothes and in my face. And I'm, I'm not much of a mask guy. And then I uh, I use it on my hands. And then I take the oil of oregano whenever I visit a friend in a hospital, which is rare. Uh, I squirt a couple dropperfuls under the tongue, going and coming and coming out.
1: I started talking about Lyme disease off the top, and um, there are so, there are different stages. And if you don't get it quick quick enough, you're into a chronic situation, which can happen within what days or weeks, right? If you don't if you don't detect it early.
2: Well, this is it. Uh, the, the, the 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 original Lyme. Uh, Children got bitten Lyme in Old Lyme, Connecticut, and then two weeks, a month, two months, three months later, they developed Lyme arthritis. And uh, some of them developed a bullseye rash, but the Lyme arthritis came on two, three months later. so it it depends if If it's a bad enough infection, you could get sick right away, which could be a fever and flu-like syndrome and uh, inflammation, maybe skin. Maybe headache, pressure, band around the head. But in most cases, you don't know, right? And right. you end up with a bum knee or a bum shoulder or a bum ankle or tired and exhausted and feel sick. And you didn't know that a month or two or three months ago you got bit. Yeah.
1: But even if you get the tick right away,
2: uh, it's the stuff that
1: people no, get. No, because.
2: Lyme. In three hours, the tick was on, two hours, and they were getting Lyme. I have documented right. cases.
1: But it's not the tick per se, it's the things that ride in with the it's tick, the, right? It's
2: the stink and rotten spirochete that it gets from the rodents. Right. And from the uh from the mice, the white footed mouse, and from skunks and coons and and then the thing that's most disconcerting is it's a spirochete. So it's a corkscrew pathogen. It corkscrews its way into the joint capsule, and it eats the cartilage, into the brain, and then it eats the brain matter, into the skin, and causing like lupus scleroderma into the nerves of the face, or the, well, the, in, actually in the brain, causing Bell's palsy, causing ca, ca, causing paralysis. And then, how are you going to get diagnosed with MS and Parkinson's and Lou Gehrig's in a in a rural or uh, you know. Uh, Floral or, or you know forest area like Canada. If somebody's up there in the north or somebody's around lots of of bush and they have Parkinson's and MS, it's probably Lyme disease.
1: So it masquerades as these diseases, or is does it yes, become it does. these diseases?
2: It masquerades as, as. In fact, I would at this point we're finding about eight out of ten MS has the spiral in the brain. About. of the Parkinson's are having it, and Lou Gehrig's almost 100%. Alzheimer's, 80 to 100% are having the spirochete.
1: Who can explain it? So, just so I understand, are you saying that these people don't actually have multiple sclerosis? They have the spirochete which which performs or behaves like MS. Yes,
2: this seems to be the case. Now, Elida Matman did good work, God rest her soul, and published it in the CRC Press, Stealth Wall uh, Deficient Pathogens, in which she discovered, through brain biopsy and other material, 100% proof of the corkscrew Lyme spirochete eating up holes in people's brains. So we have to suspect... Now, it's not the only cause of MS, but in an area where there are a lot of deer ticks, if somebody suddenly comes down with multiple sclerosis, Bell's palsy, paralysis, Lou Gehrig syndrome, or and they have a history of being bitten by ticks, then we have to investigate that. And uh, and the reason that's important is the treatment, really, because if you do have Lyme in the brain, then or if you have MS, Parkinson's, Lou Gehrig's paralysis, Guillain-Barré syndrome, Bell's palsy then the treatment isn't prednisone, uh, the treatment isn't neurological drugs, the treatment is oregano oil. Oregano oil, orega juice of oregano would be the minimum protocol. That's why it's so crucial to have the knowledge uh, that we have now. And now also, believe it or not, lockjaw, uh, it can be caused by, and TMJ, by the Lyme spirochete.
1: What is TMJ?
2: the temporomandibular joint, the jaw joint. Ah, okay. And then single joint arthritis occurring in a relatively healthy person that comes on with no plausible injury or answer is going to be Lyme disease. So somebody all of a sudden can't use their shoulder, they can't use their wrist, they can't use their knee or ankle, but they didn't injure it. However, they live in an area where there could be deer ticks. However, they also are having it occur sometime between April and November.
1: You see? And, um, I mean, this is, this is scary. This is, uh, this is beyond an, an epidemic, isn't it?
2: Well, no, it's this extreme pandemic. So the, 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 the statement is that there will be a half million, according to the CDC and other groups, 300,000 to a half million new cases of Lyme this year. Uh, my investigation shows that in the United States alone, there'll be around two to three million new cases of Lyme. That's beyond beyond, and the burden that that causes on the people and the civilization, on families. That doesn't even include the the dogs that get it or the children. We're talking adult Lyme.
1: Right. Is there uh, any point so... where you're beyond where you're beyond hope with Lyme? I mean. Uh, well, no,
2: because you know, in my book, the Lyme disease cure, we talk about how through my protocols, people are are purging it. It's not easy, my friend, but but they're getting rid of it.
1: You uh, were in a wheelchair. You were you were uh, pretty debilitated, yes, obviously.
2: I was very debilitated, and I can't tell you that Lyme disease is the most miserable disease that no one should even think about taking a risk to contract it. And it was not easy, as much as I know, and I have product available, that uh, it was very difficult for me to eradicate this disease.
1: How, how often were you taking oil of oregano well, before you started? the way I finally got rid of it, okay, was super
2: aggressive, where I was taking uh, two, three, four squirts. Well, for one week, I took a whole bottle. Uh, uh, the large bottle and I dumped in a glass of water. And then I took 120 gel caps. So I took, op, ripped open two of their capsule bottles and dumped them in a, in a jar and just kept gobbling those down. And about 50 Orega-Resp. There's 90 in a bottle. And that was a daily dose for about a week. That saved wow. my life. But you see it kept relapsing in my joints. So finally I got so sick of it. I started pounding it, pounding the oregano oil, the juice, the purge, the, the oregoras, pounding it into oblivion, Oregamax, massive doses, boom, boom, and then I got rid of it.
1: I just got rid of it completely. You know? Are there any side effects if you take too much? Yeah, you could get well. <laughs> I mean, no, but I mean, uh, it, can it upset your stomach? Can it make you... Well,
2: okay, yeah, I mean, taking that much, maybe uh, you should eat and take some juice or some food in your case, how much can the stomach tolerate? But not on the liver, no, 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 the liver handles it fine, the kidney, my, in fact, I measured my liver enzymes when I was taking that massive dose and they were really uh, better than they were before.
1: Outstanding. All right, we'll take another time out, uh, Cass. Stay put. We'll come back. Dr. Cass Ingram, the cure is in the cupboard and in the woods. We'll talk about that as well. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Stay with us.
0: When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. listening to an exclusive podcast of the conspiracy show with richard serrett heard every sunday night from 11 p.m to 1 a.m on zoomer radio the new am 740 curiosity or did the devil make you do it whatever the reason welcome back to the conspiracy show with richard serrett from zoomer radio to talk to richard call 416-360-0740 or toll free at one 740
1: Dr. Cass Ingram, the cure is in the cupboard, the cure is in the forest. Uh, let's talk about the cure in the forest, uh, uh, Cass. I, you know, you and I have talked about the chaga before, this uh, interesting kind of fungus that grows on birch trees up in the boreal forest that has remarkable healing qualities. What else? What else is going on? What have you discovered recently in the forest?
2: Well, in the forest, you have the the not only the chaga, but the the actual birch bark, and uh, birch bark is very rich in antioxidants. It, so, ideally, when you have a chaga tea, you want the birch bark with it, and you will see that in pre-made teas, chaga charge and chaga black, what have you. But the point is that birch bark uh, has a very very powerful anti-tumor, immune modulating capacity. So so does chaga. Uh, the other thing that we and I, the birch bark discovery was pretty much something that uh, the Russians had made, and uh, they they had recommended that you when, whenever you take chaga tea, you take take it with birch bark. Now, also one of the discoveries I made was the medicinal powers of tamarack bark. So that bark is uh, also uh, motivating the immune system, detox, anti-tumor. Uh, wild greens uh, is, that are remotely grown, burdock, uh, nettles, uh, dandelion, but one of the things that I've advocated is not just the root, but actually extracting the, uh, the, the liqueur from the wild greens and taking it to detox. We found that those wild greens are also good for removing gallstones, uh, for purging kidney and bladder stones.
1: Do you just for, eat the green or do you make it as a tea?
2: As anti-tumor agents as well, you know that's something a- that grows profusely in Canada. These these wild greens.
1: But do you, what do you do? Boil it and drink the water, no, or what's what?
2: going to kill it, Mister Sarah? You have to extract the liqueur, like the juice, you know, and take it down the hatch.
1: How um, do you do that? How do you extract the juice? <laughs>
2: It's not easy. You have to go pick a bunch of wild greens and run them through a
3: juicer.
1: Oh, I see, okay.
2: Yes. I mean, the product is already pre-made. I heard a Healthy Planet commercial. uh, It's called DandoMax and Total Body Purge. So we use those which are based on wild Boreal Forest Canadian greens in a raw state to clean out parasites, toxins, heavy metals, uh, PCB, uh, um, kidney stones, liver, uh, or, or kidney stones, bladder stones, and gallstones. Yeah.
1: After your Lyme disease, uh, um, uh, are you still are you still stomping around the woods no, the way you used I to? Have,
2: or I've been waiting for you. When when are we going to go? <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm, I'm planning though. I'm going up to New Brunswick to see my friends, God willing, and we're going to do a lot of filming. Because up there, the North American Urban Spice People, they have Canadian Bushmen up there that go in very remote areas to pick the burdock, the nettle, the dandelion, the wild berries, the chaga, the barks. And he's retiring, so I'm going to try to capture him and his team uh, in the wilderness in about two, three weeks and uh, make a study of, uh, of all that is in the boreal forest. Um, are you coming?
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I left my mosquito netting at the cleaner. Uh,
2: that's uh, an issue.
1: Um, um, I want to ask you about the, another book you've written, The Golden Root Miracle, the golden root, of course, being turmeric. Um, w- what's the latest well, on turmeric? The, on, the, um, the, the
2: latest on that is that the isolate's not the way to go. The way to go is turmeric powder, turmeric milk, and a full-spectrum crude extract that contains all the 200-plus active ingredients. Those are very efficacious, and people are getting the expected results. Most people now have turmeric capsule burnout. They're not getting the results. But now, thankfully, you have the Canacurman and the Turmeric Power Plus crude extracts that are available. You take those, and it pounds. I had a woman who had sciatica for about 20 years. Now, if you had sciatica for 20 years, you wouldn't be a nice person. And she, she obliterated it in like two weeks with this. Uh, I had a guy who had a dog. The dog was lame with uh, osteitis and, and, and a hip dysplasia, okay? Dog can't walk. He's given him the, the typical turmeric isolate. Industrial pharmaceutical pill. No results. He gives one capsule of this can Curement. I don't know about Canada. This is a combination of, of uh, hemp extract with turmeric. I know it's in the States. But anyway, he gives one capsule of this, or the equivalent of just the, the full-spectrum turmeric, this turmeric power plus. That was it. The dog said, no more. I don't need any more. I'm fine. That was it. I'm telling you now. When you do the crude extract, unprocessed, whole food, as God made it in the bush, wilderness, whether it's crude chaga, crude birch bark, crude dandelion, crude turmeric, crude whatever, uh, crude wild oregano oil, you get the results. It's an energy thing, my friend. As soon as you manipulate it, hexane extract it, acetone wash it, you know, uh, excessively fractionate it, right? Divide it up, standardize it, manipulate it. You've lost everything almost, and you're wasting your money. Uh, so the, so
1: the turmeric tum- the, the uh, milk, so you mix the powder in the milk, is right. that the idea? You
2: take your milk or your, your almond milk or whatever you ever got, and you get organic turmeric, and you make an infusion. And that's going to be, and they already have it on the market. Some of the stores have this milk. It's already pre-made, but you could make your own. And you drink that, and you're going to get better results than with the fancy-dancy pills. Because you're taking the traditional way the way people in India do it when they have a joint problem. Plus, it's delicious. And then you get the benefit of cognitive... Improve cognitive function, because if you take the full spectrum type, you get the turmerones and the other components, so you get the benefits to the brain, the pancreas, the anti-diabetic, the skin, and the joints. All hmm. kind of benefits, and the heart, and anti-tumor, and improved digestion. How about six in one?
3: Now, Not bad.
2: Uh, we say that, and, and, but my king is still oregano. Number one, versatile oregano. Number two, turmeric. Number
1: three, black seed. Ah, I'll ask you about the those. black seed when we come back. Stay tuned. Dr. Cass Ingram is with us. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. The truth is not
0: out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett heard every sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll-free at
1: 1-866-740-4740. Just a few moments remain with uh, Dr. Cass Ingram. What's uh, what's the miracle of the of black seed oil?
2: The, the black seed, uh, nigella sativa, my friend, it is a miracle for the, uh, the for the heart, for the skin, for the immune system, for the kidneys. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad said it's good for everything but death itself. That's not too far off. <laughs> it's not going to do you any good if you're dying on a deathbed. But it's it it's great for the heart and arteries. It's antihypertensive. It lowers the heart rate naturally. It it's exceptional for skin health. Nefertiti's beauty secret, Cleopatra's beauty secret, black seed, my friends.
1: What is it? Black cumin?
2: Black, well, not really. It's, black, it's, it's a nigella sativa is in the buttercup family. So it's not a cumin seed, but it's known as black cumin. Ah. So it's on naan bread. You know, you see those little black seeds. Yes. So ah, So right. So it's very safe. Anybody can take it. Pregnant women, if they take it, will help benefit. It will help bring the breast milk in. Uh, it's, uh, it's mentioned in the Bible as curative black seed. It was raised by Pharaoh as a crop. But, but now you have available at some of the major outlets uh, oil of black seed in capsule and also in, uh, in bottles. So um, something for your heart. At the same time, your kidneys and your digestion and your skin and your hair. I'm using it right now on a kid with alopecia. He lost all his hair, and and the hair is coming in very nicely, taking it internally and applying it topically.
1: Hmm. Oil of
2: black seed.
1: So if you've got uh, the oil of oregano, you've got turmeric, and you've got uh, black seed oil, it sounds like that's all you need in your that's medicine. That's
2: pretty cabinet. much uh, what you need to, to, to stay healthy. And, uh, you know, if you want to add uh, uh, some wild greens extract, either make them yourself or purchase them, then you could do a, a, a spring detox. It's not too late. But uh, I would say we do need a bit of detox. Clean out the intestines, clean out the bowels. Now you can use black seed for that. Add in some total body purge, and uh, eat lots of berries as a detox. So, uh, and then if you have infection in your body, a lot of times I see people right when I do the seminars in Canada, and I see that they got a lot of fungus or they have a virus. Then. What does the Bible say? Purge yourself with the hyssop that you'll be purified and clean. So don't forget your oregano. That's what they
1: called it in the Bible, hyssop.
2: Yeah, hyssop comes from Esau, which is Hebrew, which means wild oregano. So so the oregano is also uh, for detox.
1: Where does the best oregano come from, the best wild
2: oregano? Turkey and Lebanon and Syria. But now, unfortunately, what happened in Syria so we have to get it from turkey and greece has some but not too much and then of course that's the the turkish is distilled into the oreganol p73 you have also uh, let's not forget you can get the crude herb and you know on bunches and sprinkle that on your food or if you don't have availability to do that you can buy the Oregamax crude herb capsules and Take those along with the oil, and then there's the aromatic water of oregano. You know, when I was in Turkey, they said to me, Why are you using oregano oil? We don't use it here. Can you imagine
3: that?
2: <laughs> he said, This is what we use. And he, he drug out a, uh, a bunch of pop bottles, Pepsi bottles. They had corks on them. He was distilling that juice of oregano in his, in his still. And I said, "Well, what do you use it for?" This is before this was on the market. Now it is, but he said, "Well, we use it to cure cancer, heart disease, and diabetes." I said, "You want to get me thrown in jail?"
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but uh, the aromatic water of oregano is a highly anti-diabetic natural medicine. It's also great for the heart. If somebody has a weak heart or heart failure or they're accumulating fluid, we I've used it for that. And it is anti tumor, I have to say, you know.
1: Is this stuff safe for pets?
2: Yes it is. It is a very famous for pets to take the pet water and put some of the oregano juice in there. You can put some oil. You can you can take a syringe and, and squirt it in, uh the dog or the kitty or whatever. Totally, totally safe. You know, nobody ever comes up to me and says, "Hey, if I have the pizza guy put five, five hundred percent more oregano on my pizza, do I have to worry about interactions with drugs or side effects?" Gah! But when they take the oil of oregano as a supplement or calorie, does it interact with my medication? Is it any toxicity can it hurt it? Remember, I told you I was going to tell about that study. Oh yes, yes. They yes. took the liver of of animals. They cut the liver in half. They, they, they did all kind of inflammation now. They gave them a poisonous drug to kill the liver cells. Then they gave the oregano. You know what happened? The oregano stopped the toxicity, shut down the toxicity from the drug, and it, start, it caused the liver to regenerate its tissues even though it was cut in half. And it made the enzymes go up in the liver so it could self-repair. Don't tell me that oregano oil, if you're taking the real oregano oil, don't tell me it's it's toxic. Some people are going around saying you can't take it every day. Well, you could if you get the right kind. You take a little bit. And if you took it every day, you wouldn't get sick. That's the side effect. Anyway.
1: This is all peer-reviewed, These are all peer-reviewed studies, right? This
2: is a big study. There are several of these studies where they challenged, they expected the oregano to do this because the oregano oil is so high in antioxidants, and also it traps free radicals. They didn't expect toxicity. They predicted that the oregano oil would assist the liver and other damaged tissues in repair, and that's precisely what occurred, and that study has been duplicated by other investigators. There are a number of scientific studies showing that if you give, if you, if you destroy or damage tissue purposely in test animals, and then you give oregano oil, it always improves the, the parameters. Because it's inducing the glutathione, it's inducing superoxide dismutase, it's inducing catalase, it's inducing peroxidase, these are repair enzymes that the body, if it doesn't make enough, it can't fight oxidative damage. Plus, oregano itself is the, most anti, it's the highest antioxidant of any food. And on the, on the ORAC scale, it scores 3,000 for the oil. Blueberry scores 30. It's 100 times more powerful than, than blueberry. Wow. So, uh,
3: you,
1: you know... We just have a few minutes. Talk to me about some of the other spices you're, you're high on. What about cinnamon?
2: Cinnamon is excellent because you can take even that as a powder as an anti glycemic and also for carbohydrate digestion and to prevent uh, toxicity from too many carbs uh, it's a pretty good antiseptic it's anti lime uh, There was a good study by Zhang and his group showing that oregano oil and cinnamon oil dissolve the lime spirochete. and uh, uh, Fennel is another one we could move into fennel. Fennel we're using for hair growth. Uh, It's having great success for uh, alopecia and sort of balding. I don't know about a a cue ball, but people who lose their hair from an illness or what have you. And and then uh, fennel is also good for the gut. Cumin. Cumin is good for prevention of uh, aging of the brain. It's excellent for the heart. It stimulates the gallbladder. It stimulates bile formation. Uh, you know, I mean, rosemary is an antioxidant that's in the brain and prevents the brain from aging or the nerves. Sage also uh, acts to prevent aging in the skin, the brain.
1: Is it the extract or can you just, this rosemary, is stuff that you just grow it in your garden and dry it?
2: Yeah, you can. Uh, Regular intake of rosemary increases mental acuity dramatically. So I, I will be writing a book on rosemary, but for now, you ha, you know I have a new book. You know that, right?
1: Brand. The Cannabis Cure?
2: No, uh, it's called, yeah, The Doctor's Guide to Wild Oregano 101 Uses. Ah, okay. So again, always my go-to is the oregano for allergy, for histamine, for reactions, for toxicity, for wounds, for drug-resistant germs, for fo- cold, for flu, bronchitis, sinusitis, cough, congestion.
1: Uh, Don't forget snake throat. bites. Snake bites.
2: Snake bite, scorpion bite, hornet, bee, uh, toxic reaction, chemical fume overcoming, chlorine gas. It's my go-to 101 uses. Uh, skin disorders, not, not necessarily an acute case of psoriasis, but more or less uh, rash, uh, bruising, irritation, itching, and, uh, yeah, diarrhea, food poisoning, prevention, not getting sick when you travel. I mean, how could one thing do all that? And I'm not even scratching the surface.
1: Because, well... Hmm? Can you clean with it? You
2: should do it. But there's already the form. They have cleanse mycelized, that you would use to add a little bit in your mop water or to mist around the cutting board or to use in the refrigerator to kill the mold. But right. you could just put a few drops of oil of oregano in anything you want for that um, on a sponge and to keep the sponge from being contaminated. Uh, and then, of course, what could be better for cleaning the mouth than oregano oil to cut back on the plaque and the bacterial levels? That Gingivitis.
1: That, right. Yeah. Keep the, so you, you could rinse with that after you brush your teeth? Rinse
2: with it or use it as a dentifrice by itself. And, uh, and then, you know, obviously you could use it topically on an acute tooth or gum disease or inflamed gum or root canal problem or post-surgical. Use it aggressively. Uh, on the teeth and gums you know
1: Cass Ingram dot com Cass Ingram I-N-G-R-A-M dot com and how many books have you written now Is it, it's it got to be close I'm up to up what 34 i
2: and I've got 6 I'm trying to do all, all I've got to get them done one of these days uh, The Infection Connection look for that to come up and uh, and more lots more
1: Dr. Cass always a pleasure thank you my friend
2: Yeah, stay healthy and uh, keep hunting for the next cure. Bye.
1: All right, CassIngram.com. Don Donderry, when we come back, the alien abduction test right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. (laughs) Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio.
1: Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Happy Canada Day. We were flying the red and white proudly up here in Thornhill. Uh, That's where I'm broadcasting from tonight, this morning, my little studio beneath the stairs. Hey, have you checked out my podcasts yet, Conspiracy Unlimited? New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com to subscribe. And if you like rock and roll and mysteries, rock and roll and the paranormal, have a listen to the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. New episodes drop Wednesdays at midnight. 12 a.m. Eastern. That's part of the Jericho Network in association with Westwood One. Just Google it, The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone with Richard Serrett. It's available everywhere. Also, check out my live events page up at strangeplanet.ca. I'll be appearing at Occulticon. Occulticon on Saturday, July the 14th. That's up at uh, the Mythwood Events Grounds in beautiful Holstein, Ontario. And for tickets and more information, you can go to occulticon.ca. That's O-C-C-U-L-T-I-C-O-N, occulticon.ca, or again, the live events page at strangeplanet.ca. I'll be there speaking, I believe it's at 1 p.m., on Saturday, July the 14th, and then that's under the big lecture tent. And then again at 3, I'll be part of the Paranormal Roundtable. Hope to see you there. Hey, did you know there's a test you can take that can help determine whether you've been abducted by extraterrestrials. The American Personality Inventory is a test that was co-developed by Ted Davis, Bud Hopkins, and Don Donderry to assess the validity of a report that someone has been abducted by ETs. It consists of 65 true-false questions and can be completed in about 10 minutes, uh, either on paper or on a digital device. Don Dairy Ph.D., will also be featured at the MUFON 2018 Symposium happening in Philadelphia, July 27th to the 29th. He is the author of UFOs, ETs, and Alien Abductions, A Scientist Looks at the Evidence. Don, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you?
4: Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
1: My pleasure. My word, 15 years old and you're attending the University of Chicago. You were a gifted child.
4: Well, there are a lot of us, and it's not rare. Actually, it wasn't at the time. A lot of schools allowed early entrants to quit or skip the last two years of high school. In my case, and in a lot of Americans' case at the time, I, I am an American, a dual national. It was to basically get an education in before the draft got you. This was 1952. The Korean War was on. American boys were being drafted left and right, and some people in education thought, Kids should get a chance to get an education before they got into the Army.
1: So uh, by the time you were 18, you had a um, you had a BA and a Bachelor of Science in Biological Psychology by the time you were 21. What is Biological Psychology?
4: Well, it's got a different name now. It's called Physiological Psychology or Neuropsychology. It's the study of the human brain and the human organs connected to the brain that make us walk, talk, think, and behave. And so it's basically the biological origins of behavior. And that's what I've been studying one way or another for most of my life.
1: Ah, fascinating. So how then did you come to co-develop this American personality inventory? How, how did that happen?
4: Well, it's a long story. I could probably spend an hour telling you, and I'm sure you don't want to hear the details. But here's the basic outline. I've been interested in the subject of UFOs professionally, Since about 1965, which is quite a while now, I realized as a psychologist specializing in human vision and human memory that the people who were reporting UFOs weren't all crazy, weren't all deluded, weren't all under the influence, but were reporting what they absolutely recalled and remembered well. And the reports were consistent. I'm a professional scientist. This is a subject that most professional scientists don't take up, but I did with my professional training and my statistical ability and what have you. And from that day, I was in contact with other people in the field, including the well-known abduction researcher Bud Hopkins, who is an American painter living in New York, and his friend and associate, Ted Davis, who's a social worker and well-skilled in the same kinds of things that I am, namely dealing with people, getting them to express their personalities on paper and pencil tests, and what have you. So what happened was that Bud and Ted, through a long, uh, complicated history of research, wanted to get to the bottom of who was abducted and who wasn't. So they put together a 608-question, true-false test, that they thought would get to the heart of the abduction experience. That's a lot of questions. They also only had people that they thought had been abducted, because Ted and Bud and various other researchers like David Jacobs in Philadelphia and others had made a very careful study of people whose stories hung together, were consistent, were credible, and could be believed. They gave this test to those 70-odd people. Then they asked me to cooperate because they knew I was interested in this field in finding other people who weren't abducted so that I could give the test to two other groups of people. And here's the story. One group were people who were around the gill where I spent my academic career, and had no connection with the abduction or UFO field whatsoever. They were just adults who were interested in helping us develop what we called a personality test. They didn't know we were studying UFOs or abductions. They just thought they were being helpful to a guy in the psychology department because he wanted to develop a new test with an innocuous name. American personality in, the, in the Since we're in Canada, we'll take America to mean North America, but you get the idea. It doesn't sure. give anything away. Right. Then we got another group of people who, as is the case with most North Americans, knew pretty much what abductions were about, because they'd seen movies, uh, they'd seen The Day the Earth Stood Still, they knew about aliens, they knew about UFOs, they knew about uh, people being snatched, at least in stories. And We asked them to beat the test, to actually fake it, We had no reason to think any of them were real abductees, but we asked them to take the test and score it as well as they could to pretend that they'd been abducted. Now we've got three groups of people. One group, quote, real, unquote, abductees, studied by Bud Hopkins, Ted Davis, and other people. Another group of what we call in the trade controls, normal people off the street, more or less, who just cooperated with us to take a test. And the third group were fakers, people we wanted to beat the test Pretend to be abductees, and what happened? To make a long story short, and it's been published, and nobody in your audience will want the de- details. We were able to—I was able to use statistical methods, very standard methods—to demonstrate complete separation among those three groups based on 65 of those 608 questions. So this boils down to telling you that what we've got is a short test that will make us reasonably certain. If somebody comes with an abduction story, whether they made it up deliberately in order to fool us, whether it really happened to them, or whether it might have happened to them but we're not really certain. So we can have a sort of probability statement. This person, this person we think is 90% certainly an abductee. This person is 0% certain an abductee. And that's what we did. It's a little test. It doesn't end the story, but it certainly helps to make it a little clearer.
1: Now, those people that you chose for the control group or the simulator group, how are they vetted? Because, you know, based on what we know now from that poll that was – that that Roper poll that I believe Dr. Jacobs and I believe Bud Hopkins was involved in designing, I mean, you know, the number of people that are abducted, it's – potentially, I mean, the numbers are staggering. How do you – vet the control and and simulator to make sure that there may be people in those groups they don't even know they've been abducted.
4: That's a very good point, and I can't answer it. I can't get around that problem. We asked them questions that would indicate whether they had or thought they had been, and the ones who were in the control group said no. But you could always say, and that's an absolutely good point, there may be people hidden in those groups who didn't know themselves that they'd been abducted, because none of these symptoms, if you want to put them, call them that, came out. But what usually happens is this. You're right. And you got that right on. The Roper poll, which was done in about 1991, came up with a figure of something like 37 million Americans, because the poll was limited to the U.S., uh, were thought to have been abducted. That seemed like an absurdly large number, but I got into this argument at the very beginning, and now you're asking me to tell my story because I went to the, the convention, at MIT in 1992, when this Roper poll result was presented. And I stood up, being a smart aleck, and said, all very well, Bud Hopkins and Ted Davis, but we need to do more work. And here's an outline of some other things we should do to follow up on this, to see if it's real. And so they got back to me and said, yeah, we've developed this test. You want to help us uh, verify it? So this is a real case of cooperation, and that's the way things should work. In science, somebody makes a claim, like 37 million Americans have been abducted. Somebody else stands back and says a little skeptically, well, how can you be sure? They came back and said, well, we made a test after the fact. We think this might satisfy you. They sent me the test. I found these other groups of people. We gave all these people, the ones they thought were abductees, the ones I thought were controls, and the ones I thought were fakers the test, and were able to separate them. But you're absolutely right. There's no guarantee that every person in the control group was not an abductee. There's also no guarantee that everybody in the abduction group was an abductee. You're taking the word of experts for that, the experts being David Jacobs, Bud Hopkins, Ted Davis, and on my side, the expert, me, and the students who worked with me, that these people, as far as we could tell by questioning, did not have this experience. But you're right with human experience, as any psychologist knows, it's an iffy thing to be certain what's happened and what's not happened.
1: And you now as well that you,
4: and I know that yes. people are not completely consistent in what they remember about themselves, what they tell other people about themselves,
3: uh,
4: what they forget from time to time and remember again. It's a complicated business dealing with people. At least it weren't, but it is.
1: Sure, sure. I mean, in the radio business, when people used to fill out the ballots for ratings, you know, all those people that pretend they listen to jazz, and they don't. But they think that's what people want to know. I know, uh, But now that you've developed the the API, do you think it's time to go back and redo the Roper poll?
4: If anyone would give us a couple of hundred thousand dollars, sure. (laughs) That's the problem. I actually presented, when I was talking about this conference, which was in 1992 at MIT. It was called Alien Discussion. The work's been published. And I then put, to, I put, a, put together a budget at that time. That was 1992. I figured the whole thing, the verification, getting people back in, interviewing them, uh, following up would cost about $200,000. And that was wow. a long time ago. Don,
1: do have got to take, a to t- me, have to take it. To a
4: dollars, I'm sure we can get the same thing done today.
1: Okay, Don, we'll take a quick timeout. Come back. Don Don Derry, UFOs, ETs, and alien abductions. A scientist looks at the evidence right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away.
0: The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. You're listening to The Conspiracy
1: Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. And if you're going to be down in the uh, Philadelphia, New Jersey uh, area, you'll want to check out the MUFON 2018 Symposium. And that's happening July 27th to the 29th. That's the MUFON 2018 Uh, UFO Symposium, and one of the featured speakers is uh, with us right now, Don Crosby, Don Derry, PhD, a scientist uh, who studies human vision and memory and looks at the UFO evidence and concludes that some UFOs are extraterrestrial vehicles, some ET vehicles have ET crews, some ET crews catch and release humans. They study us. We'll uh, talk about that uh, in a few moments. Right now we're talking about the American personality uh, inventory. Uh, This was a a test that he co-developed with uh, Ted Davis and Bud Hopkins, and essentially uh, a test to determine the likelihood that someone has been abducted by uh, aliens. What are some of the questions, the more pertinent questions on this test, Don?
4: That would be giving it away in advance. And I don't actually have the test in front of me um so you caught me short there i'm sure oh i have oh, a I, my screen okay, here I, but it's that's
1: all right questions.
4: i'll give you a sense of them because i can certainly do that yes um here's one i'm paraphrasing it i i feel like i'm when i'm swimming i'm feeling free and comfortable in the water and and, and since that's a true false question all of these are true false questions and the right. idea is to find out what aspects of human experience make you uncomfortable or comfortable? Uh, I see a baby with dark eyes and they get uneasy. Well, that isn't an actual question, but you get the sense that we're closing in without actually ever using the word abduction on experiences that people have that are related to an abduction phenomenon, and that if they react the way most abductees seem to react, will make them uncomfortable. Now, here's something you should know. <clears throat> People that the common, and this is perfectly common knowledge in the trade, so to speak, if you have a close encounter with a UFO, that is, if you've been driving along the road in your car and you see this bright light over the top of the car and you look up and there's something hovering over the car, and then uh, a few minutes pass, or you think a few minutes passed, and you end up finding yourself five miles down the road and the bright light has gone away, You've had what's called missing time, and you've had a close encounter. And those are two signs that you might very well have been abducted because the UFO will have stopped the car, made you stop the car, dragged you out either through the windshield because they have control over physical things that we don't have, or through a door, taken you into the UFO, maybe zoomed off a ways, done a lot of probing, put you back down again, set you in the car, and set you going again. That's a classic abduction experience. You may not remember it but you'll we'll remember anxieties related to it, like feeling uncomfortable on dark roads at night or uh, feeling uncomfortable around strange lights that you can't explain. All of this is pretty commonsensical, but we've put it into 65 questions that we find enable us to separate people we are pretty darn sure have been abducted from people we are pretty darn sure haven't and people who were, we asked to fake the test. So that's how we do it, and it's all very empirical. There's no no hard scientist that say, Well, give me your litmus test or give me your um your drug test for this and I can't because we don't have any. All we have is personality questionnaires. What does this person think about this or that experience? And so we're in the realm of psychology here, not biological science, because there's no as of yet biological test to tell whether somebody has been abducted.
1: Right, right. Um now, what, what is the score one would get that would put you in the very high probability range oh, that you've been abducted?
4: It's even more complicated than that. It's not the number of correct questions. It's the pattern of questions that you get correct, or get, I'm sorry, the pattern of questions that you answer true compared to the pattern of questions that are answered true by people who are either controls or fakers. And to explain this, I'd have to explain what uh, multidimensional analysis of, covariance means. And I don't think we want to take that up in the next 35 minutes.
1: No, not without a whiteboard. It's, it's,
4: it's, it's jargon, but it's trade jargon. And uh, in order to understand it, you'd have to have gone through an undergraduate statistics course at the very least. But it's it so really it, done. And it's really done by a profile. To make it put it in plain language, a profile right. of the scores will be different from somebody who's been abducted than somebody who's a control or trying to fake it.
1: So it was designed this way in order to – I mean, why is it so complicated, I guess, is what well, I'm asking.
4: Because we're not – okay, can we take somebody's word for the fact that they've been abducted?
1: No, clearly not.
4: That, that's why. So we have people who want to fake it, want to make fools of us by you know, trying to persuade us that they've been abducted and then laughing in, at us in public. So that's not good. We want to separate that kind of people, the fakers. From people who, experience suggest they have been abducted, and it will get back to finding out whether that Roper poll number of some 37 million Americans is right. I thought it was high at the first, and I said so, and that's why I tried to uh, suggest a proposal to study it further. And then Bud Hopkins and Ted Davis got back to me and asked me to cooperate, which I was very grateful. So all this does is push the story a little bit forward. The reason we want a test like this is to add one more degree of certainty in a very uncertain area. We're not dealing with certainties here. You get out into the world, and if you ask 90% of the social scientists in the university, or say even 90% of the psychologists in practice, are people being abducted by aliens? You know what they'll say. I know as well. Are you crazy? Is that guy crazy? How can he say that? We're dealing with a very controversial and, of course, very potentially uh, upsetting process. If it's right, then um, I won't use language inappropriate for the radio. We have something to think about, put it that way. Mm. If I'm wrong, then I'm just just as big a fool as the next guy.
1: Now. Is there a is there a place that we can go to take the test? Is it available online, for example? And are you are you are you seeking um, you know currently people to take this test? And are you are you tabulating it constantly the results?
3: This is the
4: way it's done. The test was originally given to these samples of people, and that work was published oh many years ago now, about oh no about twenty thirteen, I think. And since then. The Mutual UFO Network, the organization sponsoring this conference in in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, at the end of the month, has put this test together with the other tests on its own website so that people who think they've been abducted can contact MUFON through its website and then contact a group in MUFON called the Experiencer Research Team. And that's a group of researchers, including myself, interested in following up on the abduction phenomenon. And the leader of that group is a woman named Kathleen Martin. And when she has samples of, when she has people who fill out a first questionnaire in great detail about their experiences, and she thinks it would be useful to give them the test, she'll ask them to take this test. She makes it available to them online. And that's how it's available now. If you, if you or any of your listeners have had an experience that makes you think you might have been abducted, and I've just described one of the kinds of things. That is the close encounter with a UFO or a luminous a light over your car, light outside your bedroom window, some missing time or you don't know what happened, you're in a state of confusion. That's the kind of experience that might go with a psychological disturbance, but also, on the basis of a lot of evidence, might also go with what we call an abduction experience. And you can contact MUFONS through the website and report a UFO or report a UFO experience. And when you fill out the form on the website, it will be seen by one of the people in this research group. And if they think it's an appropriate use of the test, they'll get back to you. So that's where it's available now.
1: Terrific. Um, You know, there's this old saying that seeing is believing. Except it seems when it comes to UFOs, seeing is not believing. Uh, even when police officers uh, see UFOs and when Navy pilots see UFOs, uh, why is it that in, in mainstream science, for example, I mean, psychologists, uh, you're a psychologist or you're, you're in that field. You tell me why most scientists and governments reject or ignore UFO evidence even when it's right under their nose.
4: Psychologists have been working on this problem and have some good answers. The best answer is that it frightens the heck out of them. And when something frightens you and you don't have to face it, you look for excuses not to. So as you said, UFOs don't hover over uh, Bloor and Young. On a regular basis. They don't hover over St. Catherine and Peel in Montreal on a regular basis. The people who see them see them in out of the way places. The people who have abduction experiences have them out in cottage country, not on, um, basically, as I said, not on Young and Bloor. And so you don't get a widespread, great public awareness of this phenomenon, which means that the people who are in a position to tell you how the world runs, that is, the scientists whose profession is to say what is what, don't have to deal with this every day. And because nobody understands it, that is, I can't tell you how a UFO works, and I can't tell you what the aliens in them want, but I can tell you they're here. The guys and girls whose business it is to explain the world don't want to deal with it. It makes them very uncomfortable. And they don't have to deal with it. here's why uh, there's no theory to explain it. A very famous philosopher of scientists named uh, uh, um, uh, Don, Donald Kuhn, K U H N, in 1962 published a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. In it, he explained that modern scientists don't work with evidence, they work with theories. And the only evidence they're interested in. It's evidence that is about a theory. Now, they may disagree with a theory, and they'll want evidence to disprove it, or they may agree with a theory or have one of their own and want evidence to develop it. But they have to work within a context of what we call theory. Now, you ask any scientist on the street, get one on your show, ask him to explain how a UFO works and where it comes from and how it gets here, that person will end up with his or her mouth hanging open because they don't know. And that makes the whole subject untouchable for science. Unless there's a theory, unless there's a government willing to sponsor research on that theory, there's no credit for it in the scientific game. And the scientific game, as you know, is played in universities, in private research labs, and occasionally by the eccentric individual in his own basement. But that's pretty rare. So there's no scientific establishment interested in studying UFOs, First of all, it's a frightening topic. If you think about being under surveillance by a technologically superior a bunch of beings who aren't necessarily nicer than we are, but who have a, a lot more control over our environment than we do, then you have some things to worry about. I have some things to worry about. But the scientific profession would rather not worry and hasn't had to worry. That's why. They shrug their shoulders and laugh at people interested in the subject. But,
1: but where, is the, where is the intellectual curiosity? I mean, I, I, never. let's put scientists aside for a moment. What about journalists? Where is, where is intellectual curiosity, which should be the primary f- driving force behind, okay, so they don't understand it, they're afraid of it, but still, that, in, that intellectual curiosity should override that.
4: There's one very good journalist whose intellectual curiosity certainly was up to that standard. Her name is Leslie Kane.
1: Yes,
3: that's
4: true. reporters wrote a front-page article in the New York Times on December 16, 2017, bringing to the public's attention the words of Luis Elizondo, the man who ran a Pentagon UFO research program for many years, finally retired or quit and went public with the fact that the government is actually studying them. So there are journalists who took this up, and more credit to them. There was another uh, front-page op-ed piece in the Washington Post in March 2018 by another man named Christopher Mellon, who was the deputy undersecretary of defense somewhere down the bureaucratic chain, who was responsible for that program. And he also wrote about it, saying, I ran this program, or I was responsible for it. I want people to know that it existed, and I want the government to do more about it. So some journalists are taking the the business seriously. It's been rare to have them do that, though. And I agree with you. It's just uncomfortable. Look, do you want to be told that uh, on a daily or weekly basis there's a a technologically superior race of critters with big machines that can outfly and outmaneuver our own aircraft, who can reconnoiter our cities, uh, take us up and study us at will? It's not a very attractive prospect. And I think it has, two, that has two, two effects. One, it frightens people out of being interested if they don't have to be. And secondly, it certainly uh, provide, provokes defense mechanisms. And the easiest defense is the guys who are interested are crazy. They, they have no standard in society. They're just among the loonies, pardon me, and they don't deserve to be taken seriously.
1: And Why are you different? different? You're a that's scientist. Different. Why are you different?
4: Why am I different? Here's one reason, and this is because in my entire academic career, except for the first five years, I had that marvelous privilege called tenure. Now, you know that tenure means that a university professor who achieves it cannot be fired for doing his or her job. He he or she can be fired if they don't teach, don't show up, uh, behave badly towards students, or do other things that are out of the realm of acceptable stuff. But if that scientist or that philosopher or that humanist or that English professor publishes a paper that people disagree with, he cannot or she cannot be fired for doing it. It means academic freedom for the academic. And I took advantage of it. And uh, it's a great privilege. Very few of us have that privilege to risk expressing our opinion and not lose our income. And that gives you a great deal of freedom, and I've always appreciated that. And I've appreciated the university, namely McGill, and the university system, which is our North American system, that gives us that privilege. It's
1: a rare privilege. But I'm, but I'm guessing, you know, tenure aside, you still suffered the slings and arrows of uh, ridicule and so forth.
4: I have a pretty thick skin, put it that way. Also, a reasonable amount of self confidence. And so that didn't bother me. I actually. He was an excellent researcher. You see a lot of my work had nothing to do with UFOs. I published many papers and uh, several textbooks, as well as the work I've done on UFOs. So I had a strong professional career, as well as my interest in UFOs. As a matter of fact, I was also a university administrator, running an important program in the graduate faculty. So all of these things combined. And the university... I guess, uh, left me pretty much alone as far as that stuff is concerned. And I never felt, um, how shall I put it, threatened by my interest. In fact, it was publicized in the university internal newspaper and so forth and so on. I was either fortunate or just dumb one way or the other, and I managed to <laughs> my neck out without getting it cut off.
3: Put it-
1: Don, stay tuned. Uh, we'll uh, come back and pick this up on the other side. UFOs, ETs, and alien abductions. A scientist looks at the evidence. Don Donderry, Ph.D. on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away.
0: Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't be afraid. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740.
1: Don Crosby Don Derry, PhD, is with us, the author of UFOs, ETs, and Alien Abductions. He'll be the one of the featured speakers at the MUFON 2018 Symposium happening in the Philadelphia area on July 27th through the 29th. Um how 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 soon do you think we could see uh, credit courses in ufology in post-secondary education? Or is that a pipe dream?
4: Very pertinent question. Here's my situation. And it does reflect a certain amount of resistance in the academic community. Right now, Richard, I'm teaching a course in what's called the McGill Community for Lifelong Learning, which, as it sounds, is a program, a non-credit course program for people who are at retirement age or have time on their hands and are interested in cultural events. I teach a course called UFOs, History and Reality. I've been teaching it for three semesters uh, 16, 17, and 18, and I'll be teaching it again in the winter semester of 19. I've tried repeatedly to get the Faculty of Arts and Science to take on a credit course of the similar type and I have run into an absolute brick wall. Uh, I almost don't get my emails returned, put it that way. Uh, there's, and I just told you that this is a highly charged topic for people who don't really feel comfortable dealing with it. I take a psychological position. I describe the evidence from a psychological point of view. I deal with the, and this I do for my retirees who enjoy the course, I have to say, and I enjoy teaching it, I take up the philosophy of science that I've just briefly described to you, the problem of fitting this particular set of data into a scientific box, since there isn't any box for it. The whole business comes right up against the built-in resistance to dealing with a topic that is, one, uncomfortable, and second, has no strong theoretical base in modern science. We don't understand how they work, and the people in the Faculty of Arts and Science at McGill don't particularly want me to tell tell undergraduates that we've got a problem, put it plainly. So we've run into resistance there, and you, you've you hit the weak spot in the academic world as far as that's concerned. Not weak in that the, uh, the continuing studies people were happy to give me a place to teach this course, and my continuing studies students like the course, and I enjoy teaching it. But the credit people, not so easy.
1: Not even as an elective. I mean, I would imagine students would be lined up three deep around the around the corner to sign up for a, uh, an elective course like that.
4: Yes, but you're not running the Department of Psychology or the Department of History and
1: Philosophy <laughs> of Science.
4: And they, they're thinking is this. There's a crazy guy coming in from outside, a retired professor who wants to take our best students away and, and give them a diet of sensationalism, and there's nothing to it. That's their thought. I'm serious. They don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And I've certainly explored it, and I've I've made the best case I can, but it doesn't get me very far. It's kind of funny to me, because I teach the course, and I obviously do research in this area, as you're aware, and I have colleagues who are not in universities. This research is being funded privately. You may know that there is MUFON, this large private research organization, which I think the motto was something like the study of UFOs for the benefit of humanity, which I endorse completely. Mm -hmm. And more recently, a rock star named Jim DeYoung Tom DeLong, Tom DeLong. his own company called To The Stars Foundation. And what he's trying to do is raise money from other people to finance a kind of private capital investment in studying the problem, which is fine. I can't see it returning any investments, but it's a way of people to put in money and get some credit for it on their tax forms. Uh, More power to him. But this is all done privately. The next question you're going to ask is, what's the government doing? And the answer is, I don't know. Everybody in the trade, everyone in the UFO field, has his or her suspicions. And as I said, there were two whistleblowers at the turn of the year, one who was actually running the program and the other guy who was supervising it, uh, respectively Elizondo and Mellon, they talked about the small-scale UFO program in the Pentagon, which is running currently and has been running for about 10 or 12 years, as far as they were able to tell us. That may or may not be the only U.S. government involvement in the subject. And um, that's all I know. All the rest is rumor. But um, there's, there can't not be interest, because the evidence is so strong. Not even not, not to the academic, but to the, how shall I put it, the un, unprejudiced, and open-minded observer. The evidence is strong, and it has been for 40 years. This is not new. 50 years. We're coming up. 47. Really
1: sure. Yes, uh, we are. Uh, you you brought this up. Um, we're coming up on a break, so I'm just going to ask the question and we'll pick it up on the other side. But you said, you know, we have a problem. Now, there's a sizable portion of the uh, U- UFO community, if I can use that term, and I hate using those types of terms, but for shorthand, we'll call it the UFO community who believes that Extraterrestrials are not only technologically advanced; they're probably sp- spiritually more advanced, and they look to them as some sort of savior for humanity. Uh, but increasingly, we have people like uh, David Jacobs who see a far more menacing um, um, uh, motivation on the part of the E.T.s. Uh, we had, you know, Jacques Vallee who, who talk about who talks about this you know great deception. The deceivers. Um, what is? She, I mean, there's this huge schism in in the, in ufology. With those who who see them as knights on white steeds, and then those who see them as something very nefarious. Where do you fall uh, in, 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 among these two camps?
4: Very nefarious.
3: Very hmm.
1: clearly.
4: We can talk about that. Sure. I'm not at all happy that there are critters who have superior technological abilities, who go around picking us up, poking needles into us, giving us hybrid babies, and putting us back again. I don't think that's
3: good.
1: <laughs> to put it mildly, we'll uh, take a time out, come back, and we will pick up on that point. Don Don Derry, Ph.D., UFOs, ETs, and alien abductions. A scientist looks at the evidence. Back with more here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us.
0: Beaming across North America... The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. This is The Conspiracy Show
1: with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. A few minutes remain with Don Donderry, Ph.D., Again, the author of UFOs, ETs, and alien abductions, and a featured speaker at MUFON's 2018 symposium, and that's happening in Philadelphia, July 27th to the 29th. Before the break, I was asking you um, where you fall on the the whole question of the uh, sort of the intention of of extraterrestrials. What do they want? So, how do we wrap our heads around the fact that there are those who have very positive uh, experiences after an abduction. They uh, they see, you know, that they get the big screen treatment where they're shown Earth's future and uh, environmental degradation and so forth, which has always struck me as kind of a very new agey kind of a, an experience. But, uh, I mean, are they suffering Stockholm uh, s- uh, syndrome, or what's going on there? Or are there two types of ETs?
4: That's the question I can't answer. I don't know. Here's my take on it they may, again, I'm well aware of the, of the accounts that you've just recited of people being shown these panoramas of earth in distress, uh, so forth and so on, as basically an admonition to go home and behave yourself, which is fine. If there are well-intentioned ETs doing that, that's very nice. On the other hand, there are ETs who take as much advantage of us as we take of the four-footed critters whom we consider we have domination over on this earth. And the example I use in my book is bears. We're interested in what's going on in the bear world. We fly a helicopter over some bear, shoot a dart into it. When the bear drops over in a, in a faint, we go down and test it, put a chip under its skin, pick it up, maybe uh, actually take it back to a lab before it wakes up, uh, probe and push around, bring the bear back to the woods, let it out, and the bear wakes up, scratches its head in puzzlement, wonders where it's been, and goes about its business. A lot of us who are abducted have the same experience. And by the way, as you also, I'm sure, know, many families report serial abductions, so it's obvious that ETs are interested in us over a generational basis. Now, why, I don't know. It's just that if I were a bear, I wouldn't want to be pushed around by people. And if I'm a person, I don't want myself or my friends or family or my community of six billion other humans to be pushed around by the ETs. I would rather us be on a footing of equality. Problem is we're not, technically. And that makes the whole thing a little bit, uh, how shall I put it, tense.
1: Right, but in in the in, the, in the, the scenario with the bear that you just cited, uh, obviously we have an interest or a desire to help preserve the habitat for the bear to make sure the bears are healthy. So, although it may be a heavy-handed way, obviously we can't communicate with the bears. Uh, so, it, it, might it not be a sort of a similar scenario with extraterrestrials? They don't see us as advanced. Uh, enough in order to communicate, uh, but yet they still have our best interests at heart.
4: Well, you, maybe you're right. On the other hand, we also issue licenses to people with 30 uh, 30s to go out and shoot bears. So um, we treat bears, let's put it this way, with less respect than we treat ourselves. And I'm a little concerned that we're in the same position vis a vis ETs as bears are with respect to us. Yes. And I can't, uh, all I have is the evidence in front of me. Some people come back with visions of how the Earth should be improved from an abduction. Very good. Other people come back with pregnancies and give birth to hybrids on E.T. spaceships. And the hybrids then integrate into human society. With one advantage, they're telepathic. And this gives them a power that most of us don't have over each other. So there are all sorts of possible implications to this uh, interaction. I just don't consider it obviously... um, friendly on the surface what motives are i don't know i put the problem in the perspective that we put our dominion over this planet in and i see that we're being treated as an inferior species by one that's technologically advanced and i don't know what we can do about it but i don't like it put it plainly and i don't think it's necessarily good for the human human race
1: well your your colleague dr jacobs certainly um, is concerned uh, my sense from and i may be wrong about this but my sense is he believes that the intention is essentially they they're trying to raise an army they're trying through to a hybrid
4: in one fashion or another.
1: Right. yeah right well, our- i
4: agree I, I agree with david I, that's his strong interpretation about that you're absolutely right but he's got a lot of evidence to suggest that's, What's going on? I, I have How does to say, I don't know. I have a friend, a good friend, who's a novelist, who's just written a novel about UFOs. I won't tell you more because that would be uh, jumping the gun on him. But he has the same uh, hope that you have. And he said very much, or he had, that you expressed very much in the same way. Well, they're technologically superior, so I think they're probably morally superior. And that's what he said. And he may be right, and we've agreed to disagree about that but it's certainly a hope and i can't swear it's wrong but the evidence i see suggests otherwise
1: well i agree uh, that's i mean that would be anyone's hope but that's certainly not my my reading of the situation i mean my reading of the situation is probably similar to yours uh although uh, um, as an orthodox christian everything my, this goes through my my sort of my faith filter and for me, and for this to square with the sort of the biblical narrative, I, I don't see them as extraterrestrial, I see them as interdimensional. And I, and I think what we're dealing with are either demonic or angelic uh, beings. Uh, that doesn't fly well at a MUFON uh, symposium, I can tell you that much.
4: <laughs> well, you see, I don't know what that means. That's the problem. And I don't know where they come from either. I, can't, I, I have no better answer than you do. But right. my first impression is that they fly around in machines... And the machines and other people have come up with this idea, it's not mine originally, the machines somehow modify gravity, they are anti-gravity machines, and they know how to do that, but we don't. And so they probably get here from far away in unimaginably short times by our standards. And if you understand the theory of relativity, you also know that when you're traveling close to the speed of the light, a speed of light, time slows down, so they're not aging as fast. And for all we know, they may have a natural lifespan of many, many, many more years than we do. So my, I have no knowledge about that. That's all theory, or more speculation than theory. And your speculation might be just as good as mine, because between interdimensional and intergalactic, I can't really choose.
1: What will you be speaking about at MUFON?
4: Basically, the, the American personality inventory we started talking about. I'm covering... The, re- the research that we did, that is, Bud Hopkins and Ted Davis and I did, and the work that uh, Kathleen Martin, who's the director of the Experiencer Research Team, has added by giving this test to many people who have come to MUFON to uh, have to, ex- to express their own abduction experiences. They've been willing to take the test, and I can tell you that most of them fall into the abductee uh, category when they've taken the test, and that's what I'm going to be, be reporting on.
1: As a psychologist, if someone, how would you uh, advise someone who suspects they may have had an abduction experience and they're contemplating having a regression in order to, I suppose, affirm or confirm that in their mind? Would you, I mean, is that something that we need to know or would you advise them against that?
4: This is where, this is a very complicated question. I have worked. And I'm friends with several of the, of the well-known abduction researchers. Uh, I knew Bud Hopkins very well before he died in 2011. I know David very well. <clears throat> I work with people and um, have colleagues in England and in Canada who are also doing uh, work with abductees. I personally am not qualified as a clinical psychologist and wouldn't pretend to be able to help somebody other than metaphorically patting that person on the shoulder But there's nothing wrong with hypnotic regression as a tool. It can be misused. It can be overused. The hypnotist is in a position to persuade you that things happened that didn't happen. He or she is also in a position to be able to remove emotional barriers to remembering what did happen. So it's a very powerful tool, but also a very dangerous one in the wrong hands. Find somebody with a good clinical reputation. That's my first advice. And then uh, go cautiously. That would be my second piece of advice. But yes, regression is a tool that will remove blocks that apparently have been put by the ETs who can deal with us telepathically. That's another piece of their technological superiority. And they will block you as an abductee from remembering what happened. A competent clinician or somebody trained in hypnosis And many people have trained themselves in hypnosis so they can do this outside of the clinical field because the clinicians don't always want to. A good person like that, and I can't, I'm afraid, recommend one in uh, Ontario because I don't know one, uh, will be able to help. So if I were in that position, and some of your listeners may be, I would look for a clinical psychologist or psychiatrist in your neighborhood who's open-minded, willing to talk to you, and competent to do that kind of regression and do it professionally, so that he or she would not be adding to your burden instead of relieving it.
1: As a scientist uh, who works with evidence, what led you to conclude, in your mind, that the alien abduction experience is real, this is happening? Was there one incident?
4: No, it was really simply the accumulation of carefully evaluated evidence. Starting... Back in nineteen sixty one was the first good book on the subject which was called Interrupted Journey, the story of Barney and Betty Hill. An unusual story. I don't know if I if you know it or if you're Oh
1: yes. Kathleen is, Martin is their niece, correct?
4: That's exactly right. So you're up right. on the you're up in the field, that's right. That was the first account. There have been three or four other accounts very competently written, which I've read. I've talked to most of the leading abduction researchers and as I said I've looked at their case studies, talked to them about their cases, about their, their techniques. I have not, I have one abductee in Montreal who's worked with me, and that's the extent of my clinical work, because as I said, I don't do clinical work. I'm also not qualified to do clinical work. I also, unfortunately, if you like, have a profession on the side. I still do a lot of consulting in my experimental psychology uh, cap, so to speak. So I'm a fairly busy guy. But uh, it's the accumulation of evidence, consistent evidence, the fact that at base, all scientific evidence is observational. And when somebody makes an observation about a close encounter, about missing time, and then the observation is filled in by flashbacks or by what you might call elicited evidence from a hypnotic induction or simply the passage of time, and that evidence presents a consistent picture, then we're dealing with the same kind of evidence that people have always used to develop new theories, the kind of evidence Darwin collected on his voyage around the world to find out enough information about species to develop a theory of evolution. We are now in the process of realizing that there's enough information to give us a theory that... There are intelligent species with technological advances over us living elsewhere, interdimensionally or otherwise, that are coming, and to put it in plain language, interfering with our lives, better or worse. I'm convinced Don, on the basis of the evidence that those statements are true.
1: Don, thank you so much uh, for spending some time with us. I enjoyed meeting you. Hope we'll talk again. And in the meantime, people can go to mufonsymposium.com if you're going to be down in the... Uh, Philadelphia, Cherry Hill, New Jersey area, MUFONSymposium.com, July 27th to the 29th. And uh, Don will be one of the featured speakers. Thank you.
4: Thank you very much. I enjoyed it thoroughly.
1: Likewise. Thank you, Ian, Robert, or Ryan, Albert. Back next week. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.